church. Great to be with you all, especially those of you who are with us for the first time. It's great to have you. I have a special update for all of us, and this has been a few months in the making. Lord willing. You catch that? Some of you know where I'm headed. Lord willing, this week we will get a certificate of occupancy for the new space, okay? If you can't get excited about that, something is wrong. So here's the deal. It will be mostly completed. Of course, we'll have a punch list to take care of, uh, so it won't be 110% buttoned up. And flooring, as I understand it, is on a boat somewhere on the Atlantic right now, but we don't have to have that to get in that space. You know, I really want us to have access to our new lobby, the bathrooms, and then all of our kids' area, that whole area behind that. All of that, Lord willing, we will be able to access next Sunday. So we just ask you to pray for that, pray for that process. God's will be done. I just want to say thank you once again on behalf of all the people that have been and will be ministered to by this new space. Uh, You guys have just been awesome, and I thank you for your patience as well. So the time is short. So be in prayer for that, all right? So this morning, we are in Romans chapter 7, and it's a spicy one. If you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. It's quite remarkable because this might be the most vulnerable, personally vulnerable chapter written by all of the Bible's authors. The Apostle Paul, who gave us much of the New Testament, it's like he opens up his heart and his life and he says, let me talk to you about my own struggles. Chapter seven is about the pain. It's about what you and I relate to every day. If you're honest, every honest Christian can relate to what the Apostle Paul says about his own life. Chapter seven is the struggle. Chapter eight is the victory. You better be here next week, okay? (laughs) Come back next week, okay? You gotta get through chapter seven, though, because unless you realize what the struggle is and its source, you can't fully appreciate the victory that is to come. So right in the middle of the chapter, Paul says this. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, Anybody relate? For I do not do what I want, but I actually end up doing the very thing that I hate. Very poignant description of someone who cares deeply about the people of God, who loves God, cares about the mission and ministry of the church. Again, gave us much of the New Testament. And he says, I find this struggle inside me and it's really, really difficult. And it's persistent. I'm reminded of the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde where Dr. Jekyll creates a potion in an effort to keep Mr. Hyde 
away. Dr. Jekyll is fun-loving and outgoing and has many friends, but Mr. Hyde is dark, evil, and sinister. It's like within the same person, there are two personas. And Mr. Hyde is always in the shadows, but never for too long, because that beast eventually comes out, does his thing and messes with Dr. Jekyll's life and the lives of those whom he is close to, and then retreats back in hiding, but again, just for a little while, till the next opportunity. Romans chapter seven helps you understand how that beast is formed and where it comes from. Romans chapter eight tells you how to kill it. So with that in mind, Paul begins Romans chapter seven, verse one. He's going to tell you that when you, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, everything about you changes. And all other relationships you have to things and people also change. Now, the specific context against which he writes, he's writing to his Jewish brothers. And they were, as we saw in previous chapters, really hung up on following the law. Think of the law, the Old Testament, that list of do's and don'ts. This is the Bible that Jesus would have read, your Old Testament, what you have in your hand. It was spelled out for them. And they thought that by doing all the do's and refraining from all the don'ts that God would throw open the gates of heaven and smile upon them. And Paul says, no, it's, it's not quite like that. Um, you're, you're not related to the law in that way because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything has changed, including your relationship with the law. So he says this in verse one, or do you not know, brothers, speaking to his Jewish brothers specifically here, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Do you not know that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? For a married woman, he's gonna use the analogy of marriage here to help you understand. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, then she is not an adulteress. So this is nothing new. According to Jewish law, a husband and a wife were to be together for their lifetime. If the husband dies, then the marriage is nullified and she is free to remarry. This is not new information, but what Paul drops next is new. He says this, verse four, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So Paul takes this marriage analogy and applies it to Christians and essentially what he says is this. Your marriage to the law no longer exists. You're no longer bound to the law. That's not the thing that saves you. That's not the thing that gives you Life. That's not the thing that, 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 that is going to throw open the gates of heaven for you. No, there's been a death. You're associated with the death of Jesus and the death of Jesus, because of that association, it has now freed you from this marriage to the law. You're no longer bound to it. And your freedom then looks like this in verse five. For while we were living in the flesh, we had all of these sinful passions and they were actually aroused by the law. He'll explain more about that in a second. And they were at work in our members, which is another word for bodies, 
to bear fruit, but not fruit that led to life. It was actually fruit that led to death. Last week, we described it as wax fruit. Sometimes we produce this fruit in our lives, but it's not the kind of fruit that feeds our souls. It's wax. It looks good on the outside. That's why Paul will go on to say sin is deceitful. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in a new way. Not the law, but the spirit. Not in the old way of the written code. So he says this, being married to the law was kind of like being married to that overbearing, demanding spouse. You've been set free from that. There has been a death that has nullified that marriage, so to speak, and it's the death of Jesus. And because you're associated with Jesus, you're not tied to the spirit of the law, but to the spirit, capital S, of God. That overbearing, demanding spouse of the law could never be fully pleased anyways. Was always nagging at you. Well, have you kept this command? Have you kept that command? Have you kept them all? Perpetually, always, without failing? That was burdensome. You've been released from that, Paul says, because there's been this death of Jesus that transcends the law. Now, this is where Paul begins to get very personal, very vulnerable. And he's gonna describe to you what it was like for him to be married to the law before he had this dynamic relationship with Jesus. Now, once again, because he's a brilliant writer, inspired by the Spirit, he interjects an imaginary objector. At this point, someone could be thinking, well, sounds like the law is a pretty awful thing. Isn't the law bad? He says, no, 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 you don't understand. The law in and of itself is not bad, but it does stir something that's inside you that is actually evil. So the law per se isn't a bad thing, but it's actually what's inside you that the law stirs up and creates within you. That's what's bad. That's what he explains next. Was, then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, of course not. It comes to us from God, therefore it's good. But to consider this. He says, yet if, I had not been, if, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So he said this a number of different way, ways in the past, but essentially it's this. How do you know exactly what God wants from you? It's stated. It's there in black and white. I've used the analogy for, for a few weeks. It's kind of like that, that fence that you cross, and you're pretty sure that you shouldn't be crossing that fence, it's someone else's property, but you don't know because there's nothing stated that tells you until one day the no trespassing sign shows up and then now you know you cross that fence, you're breaking the law. That's what he's saying. He's saying, before it was spelled out, I, I didn't really know. And then what he, what he, this is really interesting because he mentions coveting, which is number 10 of the 10 commandments. You know that, even to this day, every good young Jewish boy at 13 years of, old, of age is bar mitzvah. After their bar mitzvah, they are literally considered a son of the law. That's what bar mitzvah means. Bar means son of, mitzvah means command. They are a son of the commands. They would have memorized, as they do today, the 10 commandments. So 
since Paul was a little boy, he said, good, good, young Jewish, little Jewish boy, he's bar mitzvah, he's, he's memorizing the 10 commandments. And then he comes to number 10, it says, do not covet. What's coveting? Oh, coveting is the desire to have something that's not rightfully yours. It belongs to somebody else. And beyond that, coveting is, is, is a little different than jealousy. Jealousy is wanting what somebody else has, but coveting is saying, I don't want you to have it. <laughs> not, only do, not only do I want it, I don't want you to have it. That's coveting. Now, here's the really interesting about, thing about coveting. Of all the 10 commandments, this one is hidden. You know, do not murder. You murder somebody, that's obvious. Don't commit adultery. Well, that's an obvious one. But coveting, that happens in your mind and in your heart and with your attitude. Paul says, I wouldn't have fully realized that this was in me unless it was spelled out. Now, what's really interesting is that in Proverbs, the word covet is very often attached to a sexual desire. You covet a person who isn't your spouse in a sexual way. That's illegitimate. Paul says, there's all kinds of things that I want. God doesn't want it for me, but I'll tell you, I sure do. And it's been made plain to me. I know it's there. And so in that sense, he's saying it's sort of, well, it activated it within me. Verse eight, there's more going on. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I was crazy going after everything in my mind. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, it wouldn't have been activated by the knowledge. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, then all of a sudden sin came alive. And then sin also produces death. It's the death of, of your relationship with God because it's broken it's the death of your relationship with others because you, you are acting in ways that are not in their best interest. It's, it's the death of your clear and clean conscience. It's the death of a lot of things. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death in you. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. Sin is always wickedly deceitful. And through it, killed me. What he's saying is that when I was made aware of the sin of coveting, all of a sudden I found it made me wanna do it even more. When my oldest son was just a little guy, he couldn't even string together a sentence. He didn't have a blanket. He was obsessed with baseball. You know those big blue fat plastic baseball bats? You know what I'm talking about? Not the thin ones, but the big ones. He carried that thing around like a blanket. Like he would sleep with that thing. Bam, 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 bam. One day I hear this noise. I'm like, I gotta go investigate. What is this? Well, little guy is taking the bat to the refrigerator. So I'm like, this parenting thing will be easy. Hey, buddy. We don't hit refrigerators with baseball bats. Go in the backyard, got all kinds of stuff out there for you to smack around. But we don't hit 
the refrigerator with a baseball bat. You got it? Cutest little kid, chubby little cheeks. Kind of giving you one of those little nods, you know. No problem, easy. Couple minutes later, bam, 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 bam. Let's try this again. Get down on one knee, right? I don't know, Dr. Dobson, somebody talked about this. Get right in the kid's face. Right, eye to eye. Hey, buddy, listen. We don't hit the refrigerator with the baseball bat, okay? That's not something we do. Do you understand? You know what that kid did? Looking straight at me. <laughs> with no loss of eye contact. Like, what you gonna do? Dude, you can't even count to 10. But he knew what he was doing. What was activated inside him? The command. The command activated what was inside of him. Don't do it. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I've said it before, you don't have to teach your kids how to rebel. You don't have to teach your teenager how to talk back. You don't have to teach your toddler to say, mine, mine. Son, that's not something we do. You wanna bet? It's something I do. Maybe not you, but me. You understand what Paul is saying? The law began to activate sin inside him, made him aware of it. And then all of a sudden he's like, "Uh, I covet that and that and that because I'm not supposed to. So Paul says the law in and of itself isn't the problem. Imagine going to the Apple store at the quarter. You've all probably been there. Giant glass fronted building. Imagine one day you show up, there's a big banner out front and it says, do not throw rocks and break this glass. (laughs) How long before that glass is broken with a rock? 24 hours? Why? Somebody never thought about doing it until they were told, don't do it. The law activates sin. Doesn't mean that the law is bad. Verse 12, no, the law is holy. Commandment is holy. Righteous and good is for a blessing and benefit. You're wrapped up in your addiction right now, and it's killing you. That's proof that God's law is good. It's good. It's, it's meant to give you life. And if you reject it, you're gonna have your life taken from you. It'll rob you of your life, okay? Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It's not not on the law. It's on what's inside of me. Sin. Producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. It's like the more Paul studies his Bible, The longer he lives life walking with God, the more he sees this contradiction in his life. And the reality is sin has consequences far beyond what we first realize. I wanna speak to all of those who are in high school, college age, young adults right now. It is very difficult to make decisions at your age 
while you think about the entire scope of your life. That's a really challenging thing, but incredibly important. When I was 14, I never thought for a second about being 54. <laughs> never crossed my mind. 54, that was like one foot on the grave, the other on a banana peel, and it's over. You don't even think about that. And then 40 years goes by. And I'm like, man. Here's what you realize. The decisions I made and the habits I formed beginning when I was a teenager haunt me or bless me to this day. But it started back then. It is always easier to say no to sin the first time. It gets much more challenging on the second time, even more difficult the third or the fourth. And then you realize, I'm wrapped up in it. Now this is habitual. Where did it begin? It began back here. And what you can't see, what you're not thinking about is the trajectory decades later. That's the weight of it. I'm more aware of my sin today. And at the same time, I'm more aware of my need for grace, God's grace daily. And I'm thankful for it. Now, Paul gets even more vulnerable with his own struggle. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I think we've all said this. This is the ongoing struggle of the believer who tries to rely on himself or herself for sin management, and that never works. You cannot manage it on your own. That's why I'm gonna give you a nod to next week. Again, you better be here next week. This is the struggle. The victory is next week. You can't do it on your own. You need something outside of you that has been given to you that lives within you to help you win. Now, I, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin, notice the word, that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that is dwelling in me. He's recognizing that. is this new creation, but at the same time, as he's written previously, that old Adam, that guy dies hard, man. That's a difficult one to put to death with any kind of consistency. It's like we experience moments of, of righteousness, but we also experience these moments of fallenness. And that's what the Bible refers to as human depravity. Dr. Jekyll, one moment, Mr. Hyde, the next. So I find it to be a law that when I wanna do right, evil's always right around the corner. It's, it's never far behind me. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my body 
another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Now, I know this is up for debate. I'm one of those guys who thinks and persuaded to believe that the Apostle Paul is describing his life as a Christian and making these statements some 20 years after he has this radical encounter on that Damascus road with Jesus. And as he draws the chapter to a close, I can just sense, it's possible at this point in his life, Paul is dictating these words to somebody else and that person is writing. If he has the pen in his hand, just picture the fingers gripping it a bit more tightly and applying more pressure to the paper. Or if he's dictating it, just imagine the passion in his voice is beginning to rise. Wretched man that I am, that's the summary statement after all that he's thought about his mind, his heart, his actions, his attitudes. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man, it's like he's come to the end of himself. This is a crescendo statement. And then he makes this crazy, crazy little phrase. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I think he's saying something very specific. I think he's actually lifting something out of his own cultural context. And he's presenting it to his reader in a way that will shock and horrify them. The Romans were very, very good at creating human suffering. Very good at it. If they want to prolong your agony, nobody was better than the ancient Romans. The Persians, they came up with the idea of crucifixion, but man, the Romans perfected it. There was one other punishment that is just as bad, if not possibly worse. And it was given to murderers. If you committed first degree premeditated murder, they would take the victim's dead body and tie it to yours face to face. And that body would rot and therefore infect yours. And you would slowly die, literally a rotten death. And you know what the Romans called that? The body of death. Now there's a word picture for you. What he's saying is every time you participate in something that God doesn't want for you, that is sin, here's your picture. You've just tied yourself to a rotting corpse and it's beginning to rot your soul. And Paul asks the right question. Now, he's very careful with his words. He does not say, what in the world is gonna save me? He doesn't say what. What does he say? What is the word? Who? We would say, what? What, what will save me? What will spare me from that? No, 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 it's not a what. It's a who. It's a person. Verse 25, his answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And at this point, it's like the ultimate cliffhanger. You so badly want to turn the page, you know? This is how the chapter ends. You're like, okay, what's next? What's next? Come back next week. This is the cliffhanger. Come back next week. Let me give you a little teaser, okay? 
Now, back in the day, they wouldn't have had it broken down by chapters and verses. We do that so we can get quick reference. But this is a flow. And there's a, there's a connecting word. And he uses it in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore, in light of all this, horrible bad news, this, this horrible situation that we're all in, this struggle that is so real for all of us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit, see, there's a different kind of law, not a written code. No, nope, there's a different kind of law that's within you now, and it's the law of the Spirit. Of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Chapter seven is the struggle. Chapter eight is the victory. Christian, you have a new life that is characterized by a who, not what, and that is the Spirit of God living within you. That is where you find the victory. Uh, I think perhaps the most misunderstood member of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. And I think for good reason. Because if you understand the Holy Spirit's outworking in your life, you will be set free from your bodies of death. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from sin. I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. Okay, very appreciative of the Apostle Paul's honesty, super relatable. But you can't get to the victory without admitting the struggle. It's an easy one to admit to because you know it's real. So the prayer is that God would activate his spirit within us so that the burden that we felt knowing the law, having that sin activated would be overcome and transcended by the activation of the gift of God's spirit living and dwelling within us. So Father, our deep desire week in, week out is to imitate the life of Jesus, and we are appreciative of Paul's honesty, his vulnerability, because it helps us understand what's really going on inside of us, and, and to deny that is to never notice that a victory has to be made. And so we're, we're grateful for the realization of this sobering truth. We're also grateful that you give us life in the spirit that frees us from what, what essentially does rot our souls. And that is a who, not a what. And that who is Jesus Christ, who demonstrated his love, his power. Through the resurrection that ultimately will give us life and a life to come. Until that day, continue to work and stir in our hearts. I pray for those in the room that might be struggling even now with the past or the present. I pray that you would give them just such a profound sense of hope for what is to come. We ask this in the name of the one who makes it all possible. The who is Jesus Christ. 
And it's in his name that we pray. God's people said,